brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello, I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. And this week, we're looking at who's going to foot the bill as a new report. The State of Finance for Nature suggests we need to triple the amount of investment in nature-based solutions by 2030 if we're going to save the planet. I spoke to one of the authors of the report, Justin Adams, director of nature-based solutions at the World Economic Forum, and asked him just what state the natural world was in right now. The state is is inadequate. I mean, the state is poor. We are investing 0.1% of GDP, so one-tenth of 1% of GDP, about $133 billion per year, is invested uh, in nature. And it is dramatically lower than it needs to be, given that actually nature underpins about half of global, global GDP. So many sectors are highly or mostly dependent on uh, a healthy planet, uh, and yet we know from climate change, from ecological collapse, uh, our environmental indicators are in decline. Uh, and yet we are investing this one-tenth of one percent of global GDP into nature-positive activities. And you want to see investment in nature-based solutions tripled by, what, 2030? That's quite close. It's nine years away. Is that feasible? From where we're starting from, it's clearly a, a stretch. But I think more importantly is to think about how much money is already invested into these sectors. Our food, our agriculture uh, and uh, beverage sector is about $8 trillion per year. Right? So that, that is the economic output of that sector. And yet that sector is absolutely dependent on healthy, uh, healthy nature. So how can we actually shift the investment that's going into that sector to actually make more nature positive outcomes. And that's what we've got to start thinking about rather than just nature investments as somehow a separate thing. So we're talking about a tripling over that time. At the same time, every year, we're investing 600 billion per year on agricultural subsidies, many of which are actually driving environmental decline. So how could we shift those as just one example of how we can get to, to, to some of this mobilization uh, of new resource that we know is so desperately needed? And I suppose you want to change the percentage balance. Uh, at the moment, 86% from public funds and the remainder from private finance. So would you like to see that balance change and more money come from private finance? Absolutely. I mean, I started working in the climate field over 20 years ago, and it was a, it was a much more nascent field. It's now a field that, you know, in, in this report, we talk about 700 plus billion of, of investment in climate. More than half of that is from private sector. Uh, in, the, in contrast, our investment into nature uh, at $133 billion per year, 86% of that is coming from, from government, from, uh, from the public sector. So a much smaller percentage from private sector. And so if we've learned from the climate uh, and how we're starting to tackle and starting to ramp up efforts on climate change, it's about government working with private sector and doing that in several different ways, but creating policy uh, and incentive that encourages and crowds in private sector capital. We're seeing the interest and awareness growing from the private sector, but not yet the means of how they could deploy that type of capital at the scale that's required. So how do you persuade them to put more money in? Is that through shareholders? Because it's the shareholders who want to see returns, and they wouldn't automatically see a return on their money, would they? 
fact, I think if we look at the finance sector, as I say, awareness is growing that, that their investments make a real difference. Uh, and the two key things that we need to do in terms of how the finance sector allocates its capital, the first is have more transparency uh, about current allocation and the, uh, the impacts that that allocation is having. So how do we actually start tracking the negative investment or the negative impacts that, that so much money is going into uh, these sectors today? And how do we then start scaling back investments that are actually driving nature negative activities? And how can we then start creating opportunities for where investors can allocate money to nature positive uh, opportunities? And that's what we've got to start seeing scaled up. Your report says biodiversity loss could be stopped for uh, a cost of $203 billion a year. Do you detect that the world is moving towards acceptance of something like that figure? I think... Especially, world, as you say, in the midst of a COVID crisis. There's a bigger shift that needs to occur. I think the awareness of the twin environmental crises has probably never been greater. But I think there's still a tendency that we treat environment as somehow a nice-to-have or a fringe activity that just the environmental NGOs, the environment community is going to take care of. And I think that's also where we fall down in terms of thinking, well, that's where we're going to allocate capital to actually uh, um, uh, get the increase in investment that we need. And it's not that. It's actually about how do we retool our economy so that we are not driving such destructive practices that we're seeing, that is driving such a decline. Uh, in nature. And that's, I think, what people have to start. That's the shift that's got to be there. This is an integral way of how we're going to build our economy for the future. If nature underpins half of global GDP, yet we're only currently allocating 0.1% uh, of global, global GDP to actually nature positive uh, uh, investment, that's a, that's, I mean, on the one hand, that's a, a wonderful return. We invest a tiny amount and yet it underpins uh, half, of, uh, half of the global economy. And, and so how can we actually think about that in a, in a different, a new way? So that's where I see hope and that's where I see opportunity for shifting the conversation. But we are a long way from that today. Well, 2021 is a big year, a big green year, of course, with uh, Kunming, uh, climate change, uh, uh, Glasgow. What needs to be agreed at those meetings, do you think, if we're going to meet uh, the goals and the targets that have been set? Sometimes these conferences, these congresses can develop, as you know, into talking shops, a great deal of hot air, which is damaging in itself, um, but without concrete results, but a lot of promises. So I think, I think this is 2021 is dubbed the super year for nature, because as you say, we've got this critical biodiversity summit happening in China. Uh, now in October of this year, we've then got the climate summit hosted uh, in the UK in November. We've also got the UN food system summit, the first time we're having a food system summit uh, in September. Uh, hosted by the, the UN Secretary General. And the food system is the biggest driver of, of nature loss. How we produce our food is the biggest driver of loss. So bringing those three events together, it's absolutely crucial that world leaders step up, recognize the scale of the challenge, and commit to targets uh, about how we are going to address it. And we've had targets before, so it's not just targets, but it's then follow through. And I think the two key things that we need to be following through with is a, an agreement around transparency and reporting 
there's the old adage, we can only manage what we measure. And so we've got to start measuring and reporting on progress in a much more transparent way. One of the things we found with this report, it's so difficult to actually pull out so much of the data uh, to be able to, uh, to, to comment on the state of nature uh, financing today. Uh, so we've got to get better reporting. And then crucially, we've got to get this investment up and we've got to start getting policies in place that can crowd in this investment as well. And that's where the opportunity is for politicians to really lead this year. And I think many... Uh, many voices, many people are going to be looking to politicians for leadership uh, and indeed to business and to other sectors to step up. And now is our chance uh, to do that. This is the first in what is set to be a series of annual reports. What would you like to see in the next one in 2022 when we talk again? Well, I think, as I said, I think you know, as we, we found it very difficult to pull a lot of the data uh, together. And so transparency and reporting and common metrics uh, I think getting that in place is going to be crucial so that we can actually start tracking this over time. Uh, so that will be that will be one uh, big thing. But then you know, by next year, we need to see a sizable amount uh, of the uh, post-COVID uh, stimulus going into a green recovery so that we can actually start to say our investment into nature-positive uh, activities, into these nature-based solutions is starting to really go up. Uh, and again, there's examples all around the world that we can point to that we now need to take to a, a, a much, much bigger scale and we need to see replicated all around the world. Justin Adams, a director of Nature-Based Solutions at the World Economic Forum. Many thanks to you for joining us on the agenda. Thank you so much. Well, as we've heard, private companies are currently not exactly pulling their weight in terms of investing in nature-based sustainable solutions. So what more uh, could they and should they be doing? Well, they could perhaps speak to my next guest, Armin Delakian, Director of Sustainable Finance Consulting at KEN Associates. Uh, Armin, first of all, explain a little more about what exactly a sustainable finance consultant does. Yes, Stephen, it's, it's a very good question. Well, actually, sustainable finance is a very broad area of expertise. And what, uh, in fact, sustainable finance advisors do is to engage and work with governments, businesses, banks, investors, NGOs, etc., with the final goal of promoting investments in sustainable activities to channel existing and future capital flows to, to businesses that generate positive um, outcomes for the environment and, and society. So some of these uh, examples that I can bring is uh, helping companies to, uh, to put together projects for renewable energy financing, for, for preventing deforestation, for restoring peatlands, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a broad area and different companies in this area have different roles to play. So as countries are set increasingly tough green targets, is that having an effect on your business and are companies getting perhaps more interested in sustainable investments? Um, and do they get or understand their role in saving the planet from disaster, do you think? Of course, a lot has to be done, but we see that there is a clear shift, especially in the past one year uh, in this area, and there is a growing awareness of the need 
that more has to be done for the client and people. Um, so we have a positive, uh, positive trend. And some of the changes actually happening because of this tidal wave of new uh, regulations that is happening across the world in, in the United States, in Europe, in China, and, and many other countries where banks, assets, asset managers, businesses are to put, uh, to pay more attention on environmental and social issues and as such direct a lot of their resources to solving uh, the outstanding issues. And uh, I can give you the example, for example, um, what happened last year for the oil industry. Uh, so you probably heard about the cases on uh, Royal Dutch Shell and ExxonMobil, where uh, some initiatives originated by minority shareholders, NGOs, etc., they forced these companies to change their actions regarding uh, carbon emissions as well as the overall uh, pace of uh, decarbonization of their activities. In other words, the companies are beginning to listen to their shareholders. But as you were saying there, there's also, and we heard earlier in the show, quite a substantial divide between the amounts companies are investing in sustainable futures and the amount governments are investing in sustainable futures, isn't there? It's a good point. Well, if, if you look at the broad area of sustainable finance, here uh, private capital actually is dominating. So more funding is going from private sector than uh, public sector. But if we talk specifically uh, about nature-based solutions, then yes, indeed, this is the case. And around 80% uh, of funding uh, for nature-based solutions is going from the public sector. Uh, and there is a strong need for accelerating private sector's engagement in this area. Uh, so what, uh, what can be done in this area is to create incentives and make sure that the interests of the private sector and the public are aligned so that more capital can go uh, from private companies to to projects that tackle uh, environmental issues for nature-based solutions. And these uh, solutions require great engagements of governments, private sector, as well as multilateral development banks and NGOs. And is this an area that you think is truly global, or do you see it emerging in developed markets perhaps more swiftly than in emerging markets? Now, if we're talking about um, nature-based solutions, I think this is, uh, this is a global issue. Obviously, nature has to be preserved everywhere. What we see in terms of uh, actions in individual countries, uh, the United States and China are, are leading here in terms of the volume of uh, private sector investments in nature-based solutions. But... Uh, what what we have to do is to make sure that policymakers in in other emerging developing countries they are also taking um, faster actions and also it is important that developed countries and multilateral development banks they provide necessary assistance both technical and financial assistance for these uh, to these countries to to develop such solutions. Armin Dalakian, many thanks to you for joining us on the agenda.
Thank you, Stephen. Of course, while government spending on green solutions far outweighs that of the private sector, there are companies for whom sustainability is already at the very heart of their business. One such is energy company CLP Holdings, and its CEO, Richard Lancaster, joins me now from Hong Kong. Richard, tell us more about CLP, the group, and exactly what you do. We're in the electricity business. We have uh, been operating in Hong Kong for 120 years. And uh, over that time, we have not only become the largest electricity provider in Hong Kong, but we also operate uh, in Australia, in India, and throughout Southeast Asia. We are the largest foreign investor in China and, uh, and in India in the electricity sector. And we operate around 20% of the electricity supply in Australia's national electricity market. Uh, we've been focused on sustainability, and I think the main driver for us was an awareness of climate change. And this goes back to the early 2000s when uh, we, we saw that our business at the time was heavily dependent on coal-fired electricity generation. And frankly, that is not sustainable in, in a zero-carbon world. Tell us more about the measures, the sort of measures you take to ensure that every part of your business is truly sustainable. Well, you really have to integrate sustainability and make it part of your business. It's not something which is just there for external reporting and just there for show. It really has to be core to your strategy. Uh, you have to build your governance around sustainability. Uh, we, for example, have a dedicated sustainability committee, which is a board committee that's chaired by, my, by myself. Uh, sustainability is... Uh, core to our strategy, to our business operations, and importantly, in our communications to our, our stakeholders. Uh, an electricity business has so many varied stakeholders. We cover every aspect of society from individuals through to large corporations, both large and small. So we have a variety of, of stakeholders. And that communication is, is so important. As we were making a transition from fossil fuel generation towards renewable energy. This is coming at a time when, for our investors, renewable energy was seen as being a very high risk, very uncertain uh, in investment, whereas coal-fired fossil fuel generation was seen as much more certain and, and uh, provided greater returns. So we had to do a lot to educate our investors to, to take them on that journey. You have to persuade your investors, a lot of companies are having to persuade their shareholders to go green. What made you decide this was the right path to take? Because you must have encountered a lot of opposition. I wouldn't say we encountered a lot of opposition, but we had to do an enormous amount of work to show uh, our stakeholders that this was the right thing for, for our business. And essentially it came down to a way of looking at risk in our business. If, if we were to maintain the way our business was heading we would have faced uh, a risk of inability to attract finance. Uh, we're basically out of line with where our customers wanted our business to be. And when you started to understand that risk, it was a relatively easy conversation with, uh, with, with our investors that in continuing to invest in fossil fuel generation may give you better returns today. But those returns are really at risk and were not going to be sustainable. 
So by showing our investors that we had a better alternative for the future, now that, that was a difficult conversation when returns on renewable energy were much less than returns on fossil fuel generation. But what we could show is that the risks were much less as we moved forward and so that those returns were actually a much less risky return than what appeared to be a higher return with, with fossil fuel investments. Did you have uh, support from government or, or was this a purely a corporate decision? Because what I'm getting at, as you, as you know, is it, it has to be a partnership between the corporate sector and governments around the world if they're going to move forward faster towards sustainability. That's absolutely right. And uh, it was one of the lessons we learned very early on that uh, we couldn't take a view on sustainability without engaging uh, our governments and, and our regulators in each of the markets in which we, we operate. Now, that uh, is something that has effectively slowed us down. We, we could have moved more quickly, I think, as, as an organization. But when you consider that we, in some of our markets, have a retail base, we sell electricity to customers. And in making an energy transition, you can't afford to let the lights go out. You can't afford to let electricity prices become unaffordable. And so there is an obligation there to, to make sure that you've looked after that, that retail market. And we work in harmony. When, when we're working with regulators, we have to work at the same pace. So we cannot go faster than our regulators or government policy would, would, would uh, allow us. Uh, Equally, we can't move slower. So we, we have to work at the same pace. Now, that doesn't mean that we uh, sit and, and, and wait for policies to develop. We're very uh, active in working with governments and, and trying to bring them along. Um, in some cases, we're able to move very quickly when there is a shift in policy. And I would give you an example recently with uh, in, in Hong Kong. Uh, our chief executive has announced an ambition for Hong Kong to be uh, carbon neutral by 2050. So we've been able to respond very quickly and, and lay out a plan that uh, we can discuss with government to say, well, this is how it can be done. So being prepared, working with government uh, enables us to move together at the right pace. And uh, we are often in the case where we're pushing that a little bit and trying to move a little bit more quickly. That's good to hear. Richard Lancaster, many thanks to you for joining us from Hong Kong on the agenda. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Agenda podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. And we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. Until next week, goodbye. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge, and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. 
There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.